Good morning, everyone. I bring you greetings from Melbourne and uh, lovely city of uh, Wangaratta where I'm glad to be here. I came up last night and uh, enjoyed some of the fine dining in your uh, town and uh, had a bit of a look around. It's, uh, I've never been this close to a flood before. I'm sure many of you have. The, it's, uh, it's a bit scary, isn't it? I mean, the, from what I gather, the river's about a, a metre of, away from disaster for many folks. But uh, be assured that uh, those of you who are suffering are, are in our hearts and in our prayers. Um, just as uh, I'm sure the those of us in Melbourne who are suffering are in your thoughts as well. Um, as, uh, as Graham said, my apologies are sent by my wife. Um, we're in a rather unusual state of life. Uh, well, not, not unusual, I suppose it's fairly normal to people of our age. It's a new life and new death, unfortunately. We've had, this year, we've, so far, we've had two new grandchildren, which has been wonderful. But sadly, at the other end, uh, my mother-in-law is literally at the point of, uh, of death after a long battle with uh, Alzheimer's disease, so my wife has had to stay there, stay in, in hospital, be with her. Uh, so it's a, it's a strange feeling when you go through that time of life, I guess it's fairly normal for people uh, at, at our, uh, my age, but uh, new life and new death, it, makes, uh, it brings into your heart um, what's, uh, the important, what's really important in life, doesn't it? Um, a bit about my background, as, uh, as Graham said, uh, I've... Uh, I've been involved in a church plant in, in uh, Craigieburn, in the, in the far north, northern suburbs of, of, uh, of Melbourne, um, and that's been a, a growing church. Like, like uh, here, we're, we're trying to bring hope, our aim is to bring hope to, to the people in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, and, and we believe that, the, that uh, the northern regions, which would include all the way up to Angaratta, is actually quite crucial for, for the gospel reaching into, into Melbourne. We've seen the northern suburbs very much as the gateway into the city. And so uh, we gladly support anything that you guys are doing up here, and that, that, you know, that the, the work of God might flow further down and, uh, and bless the whole of the northern uh, reaches. Um, a bit about me personally, I've, uh, I was first called uh, uh, to, to minister 40 years ago, but the Lord said to me that I had to wait, so go back into the workforce, which I did. And 40 years is a, is a long time. It's a, it's a very biblical time, isn't it? I'm starting to feel the way, way uh, Moses felt after 40 years, but 40 years later, the, uh, in the last few years, the Lord has, uh, I've, I've really sensed the Lord stirring to get back into the preaching ministry and, and, uh, and do what he's calling me to do. Um, I've sensed, um, this isn't what I'm talking about today, but uh, Aaron, just I share a bit about my passions and things. I, I re my passion is really, I want to see the church live up to its, uh, in every place, uh, live up to its expectations of God and its fullness of what the church is intended to be. Um, and uh, I've sensed in the last five or six years that, um, that there's a lot of uh, dramatic things happening in the world um, which uh, a lot of people are finding very uh, disturbing. You know, things overseas politically, uh, obviously uh, issues to do with climate here, which we're seeing the, the brunt of the, at the moment in, in flooding, that uh, there's floods and fires and all sorts of things. And a lot of people are questioning what's happening. And I've, I've sensed very much that God is in control and that he's doing something. And that out of all of this, he is seeking to, to, to speak a new word into his church. And uh, so if, if uh, I ever get a chance to come back, I might be able to share some, some more on that line. But that's where my passion is to bring that message to uh, the people. Um, as, uh, as Graham said, I've been asked to speak on hospitality today, which we will do. Um, 
and because uh, I understand it's an issue um, that's important for, for your church at, at this time. So um, I'd, uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to speak into that, something which, uh, which will uh, be important to you. So let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you are here with us, Father, that we are your people. We ask that the words of my, my mouth might uh, be pleasing to you and that we might all have hearts that listen and hear only what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's see. Okay. I want to start by asking a question. A simple question, really, and the question is up there on the screen. Why are we here? What are you and I doing in this place today? Now, I mean, I want to tease that out a bit, what I mean. I don't mean why are you in this particular church or whatever. I'm simply asking questions. I mean, I'm assuming that the people I look here are, are people who, have, uh, who have, uh, are disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm assuming that uh, we surrendered our life to his will and we're genuinely looking to live in a way that pleases him and to do the sort of things that he asks. Um, we may be in different places on that journey, but I'm assuming that that's basically our motivation. So given that that's our motivation, the question I'm asking is this. Why, given that that's our desire to please God, why have we come together to form a church? Not this particular church. Um, why do the believers in Jesus join together to form a church at all? It's rather interesting, you know, that when you read through uh, the New Testament, especially the, the gospel, four Gospels, the word church is only mentioned twice on the lips of Jesus. I'll give a special prize for anybody who can tell me what those two occasions are, but they're not significant mentions. There's no teaching in there on how to, how to set up a church, what structure it's to have, and of course if you know anything about church history you realise that uh, because of that um, <laughs> there's been a lot of uh, conflict over the centuries as to exactly how churches are supposed to be organised. We won't go into that. But I said Jesus said virtually nothing about the church. And yet, as soon as the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, within a matter of days, what we know of as the church was born. Why? What's the link? If Jesus didn't teach about that, what suddenly came into the minds and the hearts of those early disciples to say, we've got to do this? What's so important about the church that they actually set out to, uh, to, 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 to create this organisation? I want to put that on the side for a moment. Have you think about that? Maybe ask yourself uh, in the interim why you're here, what your personal motivation is. Um, and uh, we'll look at something about that in the scripture in a few minutes. Now, where I want to go to now, let's start talk about the issue of hospitality. Yes, it's working. And in, in doing my research, I've found this excellent article on the internet which uh, really spoke to me about hospitality. Because um, everything I was thinking about, I, 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 I sensed that there was something sure. Now, I mean, if, if you're the sort of people that... that uh, modern and take photos of, uh, of slides, I suggest take a photo of this one, because that gives you all the, all the links and the references to where to find it. I certainly suggest that all of the leaders uh, in, in your church should, uh, should have a read this article. It's only about six pages long, but it's really quite challenging and, and, uh, and, uh, and useful. It's by um, Scott Cormode, <laughs> not Cormode, 
who is Professor of Leadership Development at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Hospitality, Gods and Ours. And so, as I said, I've left a copy of this paper with, uh, with Graham in the church office, so you can either find it on the internet yourself or uh, ask them to give you a photocopy, whichever type of technology is, uh, is, your, uh, is your cup of tea. Now, this article starts with a fascinating quote which I want to read out to you about hospitality because, of course, we know what hospitality means. I mean, I've, I've just come up to Wangaratta. I've stayed in a hotel. Uh, I've, I've eaten in a restaurant. Um, you know, we call that the hospitality industry, right? So we have this idea that what hospitality actually is, is you know, giving someone a meal or, or entertaining them in some way. I want to suggest that, start, that hospitality in the Christian sense uh, although it may include those things, goes a lot deeper, a lot deeper than simply uh, having a meal or, uh, or entertaining someone in some way. This is what uh, Mr. Kermode, Kermode <laughs> says about hospitality. He says, Hospitality is a Christian practice that extends all the way back to the book of Genesis. Although in contemporary Western culture people use the term to mean catering a meal or putting on a party, Hospitality means far more as a Christian practice. Hospitality is the offer to extend the privileges of community to those who do not have the standing to expect it, especially those who are vulnerable because they are strangers. So there we have definition. Hospitality is the offer to extend the privileges of community to those who do not have the standing to expect it, especially those who are vulnerable because they are strangers. So he goes on to draw the example, you know, why hospitality means offering a meal. And he says, well, you know, if you have a family, if you've got a, if you're a, a husband and wife and you have children, then having a meal is not something that you have to ask for. It's expected, isn't it? You feed your children. You've, you know, that's what being a family means. You don't have to ask for it. It's, it's, a, it's a right that you have. Now, an outsider coming into your community doesn't have the right to be fed, because they're not part, they're not on the inside, they're not part of the family. So when we show true hospitality, we're inviting that stranger to come in and be part of our family just for that day, that, that, for that occasion, and to enjoy the privileges of being part of our family, part of our community, even though the person doesn't have the right uh, by their standing to expect it. Right? And I think you see that that's, that's a fascinating concept that we need to think about. He then goes on to say, talks about God's hospitality. And he says this, All of human life begins with God's act of hospitality, with God's making a place for us in the world that God created, a world that we had no right, that we had no claim to inhabit. God knew that this offer was dangerous because we, the outsiders, might defile the pristine world, but he welcomed us anyway. He then goes on to say that hospitality is treating outsiders like insiders, just as God treated us. Hospitality is treating outsiders like insiders, just the way God treated us. Now, isn't that a profound thought? When we show hospitality to others, we are participating in the very centre act of the gospel. We are demonstrating to the outsider what God demonstrated to us when he sent his son into the world. 
So let's hold on to that thought for a moment and let's go back to our original thought. Why are we here? Why is it that within days of the forming of the, of the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the Christians got together and decided that they needed some sort of organisational structure which came to be what we know as the church. What were they doing? Why were they doing it? And let's compare that with the reasons why we come to church today. Well, let's throw up some ideas that we know about the gospel, the message that Jesus uh, proclaimed, and put ourselves in the place of those early disciples, you know, Peter and John and James, and say, how would, given that they were followers of Jesus, that they actually walked with Jesus, how would they have been thinking when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost? Well, the first point is, First point is that the message of Jesus was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God as a message is primarily about the establishment of a new community. Right? Think about the way Jesus <laughs> called disciples. He didn't call disciples in the way you and I might call disciples. He goes to, I don't even know much about the background of some of the people in the New Testament, but he calls Peter, James and John, who are three fishermen, three call it local businessmen, right? We live in a local community, we know we're local businessmen, you know, you know, we, we, you know, maybe some of you are local businessmen. So he called three local business, businessmen and said, I want you to be part of, part of my group of disciples. And they said, yes, we believe in you, we're going to be part of your disciples. So far, so good. What does he then go and do? He calls a man called Matthew, who's a tax gatherer. Now, I don't know if you know the way tax worked in the Roman Empire, but they had a good lark going. The Romans said to the people, I need to collect X dollars worth of X, no, denarii, whatever the coin was, call it X dollars a year in taxes from uh, this community. So I'll sublet that out to the to people who are called tax gatherers. We're not going to tell the people what this amount I need is X, but you, you can keep, you can, if whatever you can get out of these guys... Um, you get to keep anything more than X. Right? So they would, the tax gatherers would basically, in the modern vernacular, they'd screw the people for as much as they could get, and anything more than the bare minimum, they got to keep. And Matthew was probably had a job sitting on the side of the road every morning when Peter, James and John came out from, the, from their night's fishing, and he'd say, oh, I see you, you've caught some fish there. How many have you got? A hundred fish? And I think I'll take 25. You know, and he'd take as many as he could get. That was what Matthew's role in society was like. So I don't need to tell you what Peter, James and John probably thought about Matthew. He wouldn't have been their favourite person, would he? And yet what Jesus did was he finds Matthew and calls him and says, OK, do you join our community? And Peter, James and John said, we don't want him in our community. And Jesus said, that's the rules. It's the, community. It's the new community of the people of God. Those who because we're all sinners in different ways, right? I'm calling people together who are part of this new community. 
And that's the fundamental issue of the New Testament, isn't it? That it is creating this new community. This is a wonderful Bible passage, which is often forgotten. It's in Ephesians, wedged between two very popular favourite passages. But in, in many ways, this is actually more important than those other ones. We just forget about it because we're, we, we for, have forgotten the real conflict in the early church between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, most of us here, I'm almost certain most of us here would be non-Jewish. So the issue of, as, as to whether the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, were to be accepted in God is, you know, is not an issue that affects us today. It's, that battle was fought long ago, but it was a very real battle for the early church. And read what Paul says about it. I mean, the beautiful words he speaks about it. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles, that's people like us, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, isn't that a beautiful passage? I mean, it emphasizes that theme of hospitality, doesn't it? Extending grace, extending the privileges of being part of the family to those who have been outsiders, to those who don't normally have the right to expect it. The Gentiles had no right to expect that the God of the Jews would bless them, and yet bless them is what he did. God showed tremendous hospitality to us, for us to be here, and we need to be conscious of that. So that's the first point, is that the kingdom of God is all about the establishment of a new community. And the second thing, which is a, I think is very challenging for the church, the modern church in particular, because I think it's very hard for us to grasp this, the significance of this, but that community is based around agape love. Um, John 13, verse 34. I, um, I presume you know what agape love is. It's the sort of love which is, you know, the Greeks had different wa words for love, but agape love is the love that we, where you offer love simply based on your own character, not based on the merit of the person you're loving. It's where you love the unlovable. So it's agape love that enables you to love your enemies. It's agape love that enables you to love uh, those who mistreat you and persecute you. Um, it's based upon your character. It's based upon <coughs> a transformed character, not based upon the merits or benefits that the other person uh, can give you. And here's the words that we find, I think they're actually tremendously challenging. 
Right at the end of Jesus' life, he said this. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. Well, so far, so good. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then here's the kicker. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, you see that, is giving permission to the world to judge us by how we love each other. He's not saying the world will know they're Christians because they keep the commandments. He's not saying the world will know they're Christians because they turn up in a building every Sunday and, and sing a few worship songs. Um, he says, you want to see if they're the people of God, look at the way they treat each other. Are they loving each other? And so, our role is to demonstrate the reality of this new community. Right? That's the role we were left for, to demonstrate the reality of this new community that God has established, this community that we have experienced if we've come to know Jesus, we've experienced it in our heart. And our role is simply to demonstrate that. Now, we'll do that imperfectly. None of us are perfect. But our role, the important thing for us, is to demonstrate the reality of the said. And that is why we are here. Now, there are other things as well, the benefits of church. I mean, you know, uh, some of you might say, uh, oh, you know, what about, you know, we come together for the preaching, and that's obviously a very important thing as part of our, our Baptist tradition, and, you know, and that's... Obviously, uh, I'm not going to deny that because we, we need to be taught. But you see, interesting, in the early church, in the, in, the, in the first century, they already had a tradition of teaching. It was called the synagogue, right? And the early Christians, the Jewish Christians, still went to the synagogue, right? They got teaching through the synagogue, and, but they also came to church, right? You might say, well, I come to church for the worship. and that, well, Obviously, that's an important part. I'm not going to suggest that... Uh, Worship isn't a part of our communal life together. But again, in the first century, the Jewish Christians had a tradition of worship, and it was called the temple. Right? They went to the temple to offer worship, and the first century Christians still participated in the temple. So, in a sense, because the temple and the synagogue aren't part of our lives today, those roles have been subsumed to a certain extent into the church. And that's important, because it's important that we get teaching, it's important that we get we spend time in worship but it's not the fundamental reason why the church exists the fundamental reason why the church exists is to demonstrate to the world the reality of this new community to demonstrate to the world that we are the people who have been called out by God and show them what the world is like as I drove around Wangaratta I was amazed, not amazed, I, I suppose, I was interested to find that um, there's a lot of uh, amazing and beautiful uh, religious history in this town. You know, two beautiful, uh, beautiful cathedrals and beautiful stone churches. You know, Wangaratta does not need us as Wangaratta Baptist Church to tell them that God exists. There's plenty of witnesses in town that God exists, right? The world today does not need a witness that God exists. What they need is a witness not to the existence of God, but to the reality 
of the community that God has created. The world needs to see a witness that what God has established in the world is actually real and is affecting lives. Um, the world needs to see a community, however imperfect that community is, that is showing the hospitality of God which God showed us. When we didn't deserve it, he showed us his hospitality. So then, hospitality, as we've defined it, is central to the message of the gospel. It's not something peripheral. It's not something added on. It actually goes to the heart of the message. Let me read another quote from uh, Scott Cornone under the topic Hospitality in the New Testament. First of all, I want to look, how did Jesus practice hospitality? He says this, In the New Testament, Jesus practiced hospitality and he received it. He ate with sinners and tax collectors tax collectors. Accepting their hospitality was not just about sharing a meal. It was a way of identifying with them and making them a part of his community. A point that both the, fa a point that the Pharisees both understood and reviled. Think about that. Uh, Jesus identified with the sinners and it was the very fact that he was identifying with the sinners that left the religious people with their noses out of joint. Right? Because they said, the religious people said, these people don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. They're sinners. Problem was, what they didn't realise was that they were sinners too, and they didn't deserve to be in God's kingdom. Right? Jesus demonstrated the reality of the kingdom, the reality of this new community, by basically accepting the sinners on their own terms. And I want to make a suggestion for us that how we treat outsiders, especially the sinners, those that we don't think live up to the standards of God, how we treat those people in our community, that defines most more than anything else whether we are more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees. Now, it's not black and white. I'm not suggesting that, you know, you're a Pharisee, you're a... You're a I mean, there's a... There's you know, good and bad in all of us. You know, we're all on a journey, aren't we? But I want to throw that out there. How you treat the people that you don't like, that whose standards are not your standards, who, uh, who are the outsiders, shall we say, of your community, how we treat those, that's who defines how close we are to the spirit of Jesus. And the second point that we have on that page is a second quote how the early church, following in Jesus' footsteps, demonstrated uh, hospitality. Again, referring to what this article says. Hospitality in the early church became a basis for evangelism. Think about that, a basis for evangelism. One of the primary reasons that the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire was that the Christians practiced a different kind of hospitality. Ancient Romans typically practiced hospitality for important people. That is, only for people 
who could give them something in return. But the Christians became noted for extending hospitality to all, even the least of these. This was a significant part of how the early church developed its reputation of love. The early church loved outsiders as if they belonged. Now, I don't know how much you know of uh, early church history, but over the first 300 years in the midst of terrible persecution, the Christian church grew from a body of, what, 120 that it was on the day of Pentecost to basically uh, somewhere between 10 and 50% of the whole Roman Empire was converted to Christianity within the first 300 years. We don't know for sure, but certainly it was that they were a significant minority by the time Christianity became the, the legal religion in the 34th century. Christianity had grown to that level. And it's, it's interesting when you read some of, the, some of, the, uh, some of the, the literature of the time, you get an idea as, to, uh, as, as uh, Mr. Cormode says here, you get an idea of what the Christians were like. There's a famous letter written by, I think, Pliny the Elder, one of the Roman statesmen, to his son. And it's basically a, a, a letter telling him how he has to throw those terrible people, the Christians, into jail and throw them to the lions because they're so devious and nasty and wicked people. And what was the grounds he said they were wicked? He said, they treat slaves as if they're human beings. They treat the poor as if they matter. They're so despicable for doing this. That's why you need to persecute them. Isn't that amazing? That's the reputation the church had. Amongst the elite, of course, it uh, created a bad reputation. But that's the way God treats us, and that's the way the early church learned to treat, um, to treat, uh, you know, that early church learned to treat people. So let's draw all this uh, to a close now. Let's recap where we're at. Think about what God has been saying through this. I've got four points here that I want us to take to heart. First thing is, if we are to fulfill God's call to bring hope to the northeast, we need to have a heart of hospitality, a heart attitude. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying you should be doing this or doing that or whatever, but your heart has got to be welcoming to the outsiders. You need to be on the lookout every day for those who are the outsiders and say, I want to find some way of welcoming them. Right? Uh, it's a hard attitude that we have to have. The second point is that if we have that heart attitude, then all of our gifts and all of our, indeed our personality traits can and should be used to, um, to uh, enforce, to do, do, do the practicalities of that. Now, what I say to that is, as hospitality is often thought about, you know, as off offering the stranger a meal or, or whatever like that. Now, quite frankly, that wouldn't be the way I would show hospitality. You know, you wouldn't want to eat a meal that I cooked, you know. And you might be like me. Some of us are hospitable in that sense by nature. I, I've known some, had some friends in my life who, you know, at a moment's notice they, they are happy to welcome a, a, a stranger into their house, cook them a meal, and it just goes swimmingly. I'm not like that, right? If you're not like that, 
don't try to be something you're not. Right? Use your own gifts, your own talents, your own personality traits to extend hospitality. Let me give a couple of examples from my own life how simple hospitality can be. I, I was a, a young Christian. I said, I've been a Christian now about 40 years, I was, as a te- which means I uh, came to the Lord in my late teenage years. But I was always very socially awkward. And the first church I went to, they sent me along to the youth group. And um, I didn't fit in well. I was an outsider. Not because you know, people wanted me to be an outsider, but I was socially awkward and, and I didn't know how to relate to people. Two things happened which made me stay in that place until God was able to take hold of me fully. The first was that one young lady sat down and talked to me for an hour or so at one Christmas Eve function. And she treated me like a human being. She just talked to me um, on equal terms. I went away from that conversation feeling, wow, I'm actually wanted here. I'm not an outsider anymore. I'm part of the inside just because she spoke to me. On another occasion, the, 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 it was actually the, the day before God did his first amazing work in my life, something similar happened where we were going to our first church camp and the young people all sort of banded together holding arms and, and uh, as they walked up the, you know, as the, 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 the road as young people you know, tend to do and, uh, and one of the young people just pulled me in and, and put, put their arms around me and made me part of the group. It was wonderful. I felt on the inside. I felt as if I was wanted. And I verily believe that the thing that, that was the very next day where God did a miracle in my life, that, that miracle involved me opening up my heart to God in a new way, and as a result, he came into my life in a new way. Right? But I, looking back now, I think, would I have been willing to open up my heart if I hadn't been shown that simple act of hospitality? I don't know. But the thing is, even the simplest acts of including people, right, can be amazing in power in the kingdom of God. So how do you show hospitality? Well, you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? If you're an extrovert, obviously the way you're going to show it is, uh, is far different. Are you someone that, uh, that likes making meals? That's another thing. Uh, if you're a bloke, why not invite them to the footy? That's one way of including people. What are the other things that people do around here, the social things? You know, it's many different simple ways you can extend hospitality to make someone feel as if they're on the inside. Maybe just a cup of tea and a handshake on a Sunday morning is the way to go about it. The third point is that true hospitality involves taking a risk. It's costly because it involves opening your heart up to the stranger. And the stranger might not be worthy of that. I hasten to point out that you and I weren't worthy of God's hospitality either. Yet he took the risk and extended it to us, didn't he? So being afraid of the consequences of what might go wrong if the stranger, you know, trashes your house or whatever like, you know, things like that you might be afraid of, that's part of the risk involved. I'm not saying you should take a risk that's, you know, disproportionate and, you know, leave your leave your jewellery lying on the table with a stranger in the house. You know, I'm not suggesting anything like that. But, you know, there's ways of mitigating the risk. But you can't avoid taking risks altogether, right? You have to extend hospitality, which means you've got to treat people, uh, give them a chance. And, uh, and there's a, 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 a beautiful example of that uh, in the paper at the end. Um, so it is costly, 
But I want to finish by this suggestion, that if you do show hospitality, you may actually find yourself entertaining angels. The reference there is Hebrews 13. You, you may know that uh, it says practice hospitality as a reference to, uh, to Abraham, who, uh, who entertained angels. Now, I mean, I'm not really suggesting that if you, if a stranger turns up at church and, uh, and you invite them for a meal, that they'll turn up to be a, a, a divinely sent angel. I mean, it might be. I mean, it's hardly the most likely thing. But you see, an angel really simply means a messenger from God. That's the, what the word means. What I am suggesting is that if you open your heart up to the stranger, you may find, to your surprise, that God is blessing you in the same way, that you think you're doing something for the stranger. It may just be that God is having the stranger do something for you as well. So God bless you and thank you, and, uh, and may we all learn to put into practice what he said to us. Amen.